0: Welcome to the Investor Coaching Show, a podcast to help you get an insider's view of the financial world and escape common investment traps. We look at the financial news of the day and help you make sense of it so you can relax about money. And here's your host, Paul Winkler.
1: And they welcome to the Investor Coaching Show, Paul Winkler along with Jim Wood. Talking money and investing. Okay. There are things, and we're going to spend this time just talking about some things that you need to know as an investor. And there are questions that we give people, you know, just, and it's not necessarily to trip you up, just to help you understand what you need to know more about as an investor, And that's the key is just to, you know, what are the things that maybe you've been missing? And quite frankly, the investing community misses because, Jim, we all came from the backgrounds as investment advisors, working for big banks, insurance companies, broker dealers, uh, investment firms. Now, one of the things we want to look at is number, do you know what you're doing and why, you know, when you're managing a portfolio? But how do you measure risk of a portfolio? If you think about it, one of the primary things we want to do is know how to measure and control risk of an investment portfolio. But if you can't measure it and you don't understand how risk is managed, you can't and, and a lot of people talk about it but here's an academic talking about it. This guy won the Nobel Prize for economics, so we probably ought to listen to what he has to say. So let's just check this out for a second right here.
0: In order to ver- diversify properly, you not only need lots of securities or lots of asset classes, but you need ones which are not too correlated, whose Key. Uh, returns don't uh, go up and down together Key. too much. So uh, that makes the problem of diversification a little complicated because you have to find combinations which uh, will will fit together properly so that they so they don't go up and down together.
1: So that was he says you have to find combinations of things that fit together so that they don't go up and down together. That is the key to diversification. I hear people say, you know, you gotta have some money over here in an annuity, and then you have your stocks over here, and then you gotta have a little bit of money in gold over here to diversify, and then you wanna have a little bit of cryptocurrency if you wanna have a little bit of that, and then you have to have real estate over here that diversifies you. He's not talking about that. That's not how he's talking about diversifying. He's talking about putting things together So hence, let's say I have asset A and it just rocks and it does really, really well. And I have asset B that kind of meanders and it doesn't do so well. Now, I didn't know ahead of time which was going to go rock and which one was going to meander. If I did, I just put everything in the thing that was going to rock, right? Now, what he's talking about is putting them together such that if one does well and the other doesn't, by the way, this is in the Old Testament in Ecclesiastes, you know, if we, you plant in the morning, plant in the afternoon, you don't know whether one is going to do better than the other or both, it'll do well. So this isn't a new concept, in other words. It's almost three thousand years old. But that's the idea is to put things together that move in dissimilar fashion.
0: Well right. I like to explain it just to, in terms of kind of there's two things you want to look at essentially, is one is correlations, how they move in a similar or more importantly dissimilar fashion. And then, of course, their are expected returns, because that's super important. You can have something that isn't correlated, but it doesn't have the proper return. You don't want it in your portfolio.
1: Yeah, exactly. So if I have two things, like let's say large U.S. stocks and large international stocks, so we'd go back to the 1950s. The rate of return is about 10% per year for both of them, okay, from the 1950s until now. So if we look at that and say, okay, so if I put a dollar and I had a horse race and I had a dollar in large international and I had a dollar in large US, they would have both ended up at the same spot, you know, now, Around approximately, they'd be about in the same spot, the same return. So hence the dollars would have grown to the same amount. But if I put them together, And, you know, maybe one decade, like the the 70s, International did way better than U.S. And then the early 80s, U.S. did better than International. And the late 80s, International did better than the U.S. And the 90s, U.S. did better than International. And the 2000s, International did better than U.S. And back and forth, if I put them together, then I had a portfolio with less risk than the parts. That's what Markowitz is talking about here. And that's the point that's missed is... A, question number eight, when it comes to building your portfolio, do you know exactly what you're doing and why at all times we want to be putting things together in, in that particular method and using a methodology that's an engineering methodology? It's it's thought through. And that's question number nine. Do you have a system to academically measure portfolio volatility and that method is measured through standard deviation. It's the best thing that we've got. It's how much ups and downs. And what we want to do is we want to squeeze that standard deviation curve so that we maximize expected return for a given level of volatility and you know, th- if this is all foreign language to you, you've never heard it before, chances are really good if th- the method you're using to manage money that the people that are managing it don't even know this because we didn't when we were brokers. I know, don't, I don't, and nothing against, but a lot of times people just don't know these types of things. And, and it, because it's not trained in the typical investment advisor world because it isn't a big money making thing. And that's really, and, and you go, well, what do you guys do? Well, you know, the, the reality of it is, we come at it from an academic standpoint because I I believe, I'm stubborn enough to believe that if you understand this, that you won't ever stray from it. And you'll make a great client, quite frankly. I mean, that, that's my philosophy regarding all of this. Now, the next question is question number 10. And it's, do you have an academic method for measuring the risk tolerance and do you know what that number is? Well, that number that we're looking for is that standard deviation number. Now, that risk that you can put up with will vary based on your age. When you're young and bulletproof, you can put up with tons of volatility. Matter of fact, the volatility works in your favor. You know, because if the market goes way down, you're buying more shares. When the market goes way up, you're buying fewer shares, and you can use that to actually work in your favor. Your point on that.
0: Well, I'm just thinking in terms of education on risk, because having a lot of understanding about that, because some people just naturally say, oh, I want to take all the risk in the world. Some people just, I don't want to take any risk. Mm -hmm. But you really have to have that conversation on what's the money for. When are you going to spend it? Is it for a goal? You want to buy a vacation home in 10 years. Is it money you're going to take an income off of in retirement? And all these, the answers to those questions really should drive the portfolio. So you have to really have that conversation first. Now, some people are going to be naturally, I want less volatility and I'm willing to sacrifice some return Mm -hmm. with that. And some people just say, well, I'll deal with the volatility because I want to make more over time. And so kind of fitting those two Aspects together, somebody's personal feelings about risk, which is important, but the time frame is the most, uh, to me, the, the, by far the most important. Th- first part of that question.
1: Well, it's a huge thing. So, you know, I'm just sitting here with my calculator as you're you're talking, Jim, and I'm going, okay. So, what if my time period is 30 years, and I accept a return that's akin to what Treasury bills have done over that period of time? You know, so I I take that and I say that's a very low risk, quote unquote, investment. And if I look at 30 years, you know, 3%, that $10,000 turns into $24,000. And I go, okay, so it grew. I went from $10,000 to $24,000. But if I look at the, the worst rate, let me just use the worst rate of return for large U.S. stocks over any 30-year period throughout of all, of, all of history. That's $115,000. That's a big difference between those two. If I look at the historic return of small companies over that same period of time, it's $300,000. So you see the difference is pretty big, you know, $300,000 in the last example versus $24,000. And you look at that and go, wow, that's a pretty big difference in lifestyle. Now, if I only had a couple years before I needed all that money back, you know, it would be very, very hard pressed to make any sense to use stocks. Because let's say that the rate of return in my period of time was only three years, let's say. And the rate of return was 3%. That $10,000 is about $11,000. Well, if I got a whopping 12% rate of return, yeah, I got 14. But I also could end up with five. <laughs> you know, so hence, your amount of time before you're going to spend the money. And if I am going to spend the money in three years, it's really not terribly prudent to go and stick all my money in stocks.
0: Right, that's a a short-term goal like that should never be in a a variable market because you can, you know... You might do great the first year, it might fall off the table right before you need to spend it. I see right. that a lot with college planning. Right. You know, there are a lot of college plans are set up to automatically get more conservative as the person gets towards the age of spending that money. But I have seen them where somebody just like, no, I just want to keep it in the I funds just... that have been making money and stuff like that. Right. And you can get there and have a year like you know, 2022, where all of a sudden, okay, I got to pay a bunch of college bills, but I have 10 percent or 15 or 20 percent less money. To and to and that happened bills. to
1: people in you know, 2022 is a great example, just because, you know, last year, if you look at that, and especially if you had been in what had been making money before, which is the S&P 500, that had been making really good money, the returns were really good. It just so happened that 2022, it was one of the worst returning areas of the market down almost 20%. And, you know, you'd been sitting there going, hey, this has been doing really well, this has been doing really well. And then all of a sudden, And, you know, where you have some areas in the market, like small value stocks went down only three. Uh, But most people, because small value hadn't done as well previously, so that's back to that past performance thing that we were talking about earlier, Jim. I mean, it really goes back to that. So this is really important. Your time horizon drives your asset mix how much income you're going to take, Your level, and this is way beyond what we can do right here, but these are all things that are tremendously important in determining how do you put the portfolio together and do you have a method for measuring your risk tolerance and do you know what that number is? And if you find out and you figure out that there's a way to measure this and you know that the portfolio is within that, and this may not be of any interest to you, but it sure should be of interest to your advisor, and I'm going to tell you if you ask them how do you measure risk? And how do you, you know, come up, what's a scientific method for actually doing that? I, I know when I was, you know, this, and this is going back 25 years because it's been a long time since I've been out of that world. But I'm gonna tell you, I was stymied when somebody looked, asked me, if, they, somebody, if somebody were to ask me that question, I'd be going deer in the headlights. Hmm. I wouldn't know how to answer that question. So I think it's really important to understand this stuff. Next question is something to do with the banking crisis and what created the banking crisis and making sure that the bonds that you hold aren't what caused the banking crisis. Hey, folks, I want to tell you something I'm really excited about. My new book, Confident Financial Planning, is finally out. It's in paperback, hardcover, Kindle version, and I actually have an audiobook version of it. Uh, talks about building your financial castle. I use that throughout the book, talking about your investments. Your financial plan it is kind of like a castle. You have your savings and your emergency funds. I talk about that debt, good debt, bad debt. We talk about special goal funds and how to set those things up and how to invest for those types of special things that you might want to do in the future. Types of retirement accounts, different types of taxation of investment accounts. Talk about real estate investing and Pros and cons of that, how to project retirement assets, and your moat. You know, that's how you protect your castle. It's the risk management aspect of a financial plan. If you want to find out more about that? You go to paulwinkler.com forward slash book to get it. And uh, hope you enjoy. Going through th- some of the questions that we think are important, we're redoing our investor awareness guide things that we think that you ought to know, and just walking through why these things are important. So the next question is, if you look at the banking crisis, the big banking crisis that we've been hearing so much about in the news, you know, these banks going through all kinds of difficulties. Why? Because we want to get higher returns for our depositors. That's how we compete, which is great and all well and fine. But it's not all well and fine when you take risks that are rather challenging to recover from if interest rates go the wrong way, which is what we keep talking about with the Federal Reserve, increasing interest rates. And then you drive down the price of bonds when you do that. So you know you wanna walk through anything regarding that and how we actually look at controlling those risks of the portfolio?
0: Well, a lot of these banks have gotten in trouble because they have held portfolios of an immense amount of longer term bonds. And of course, um, when interest rates go up, the actual value of those bonds goes down. And eventually, that they can lose so much value that all of a sudden, they can't cover their debts. They can't, you know, they no. start, they become insolvent.
1: You go withdraw your money and they go, yeah, we're sorry, your money is in this bank, but it's in an investment that dropped in value and we'd have to sell it at a low price. And we don't really want to sell it at a low price because then we lock in the loss And just a hint of that,
0: and of course, people are going to run for the exits. Give me my money now. I'm going to go take it over to this big
1: bank that doesn't have these problems. When they hear that, I'm out of here. Yeah, so that's exactly what happened. You know, so when we're looking at the bond portfolio, we're looking at those risks in the bond portfolio. Uh, You know, insurance companies, we talked about this before. Increasingly, insurance companies were investing in high-risk bonds. And you go, well, you know, they say guaranteed on my insurance product when I buy it. It says guaranteed, but read the fine print. It says based on the good faith and credit of the insurance company. And if that insurance company isn't around because they invested in bad things, you got a problem on your hands. So you got to be aware that, you know, a lot of times what, what the big print gives guarantees the <laughs> fine print takes away <laughs> one way of saying it. You know, so that's another thing. Now, another thing that's, uh, you know, as far as we talk about the, the risks and, and those types of things, the next question in the list of 20 must answer questions is where do you fall on the market with sufficient frontier? Well, you've just been hearing from that guy, you know, in so many of these segments Mark Markowitz won the Nobel Prize because he said, hey, how do we put things together to maximize expected return for a given level of risk? Well, there, there is a frontier that he came up with. And I don't know, did you guys ever use that when you were selling? Did you ever use the Marco Efficient Frontier to sell? No, not at all. No. I've, you didn't? No, I, it was five-star mutual funds. Just,
0: you know, go out and sell five-star mutual oh, funds. That was it, huh? Go out and sell the living benefit on the annuity, um, yeah. You know, I mean, I'm sure somebody mentioned that somewhere, but it wasn't anything that was, you know.
1: We had a software program, Jim, that I used, and it was funny because it was based on this idea. And I remember using the software program, and I revisited it after going through, you know, the a lot of the education that I had been through. And I recognized that the efficiency, it was an optimization is what it was called, portfolio optimization software. And when I went back and revisited that years later, I was like, these aren't optimal portfolios. <laughs> they actually used it as a, as a marketing tool. And, and imagine that a mutual <laughs> a broker and investment advisor using it as a not, as a marketing tool. And uh, the other thing that I found was misused often was Monte Carlo software. And you know, I have I have people that say that, you know, hey, we're using Monte Monte Carlo analysis in the d- design of our portfolio. And then I look at it and go, wait a minute, this standard deviation number and the expected return number that's being used here isn't based on actual history or long-term asset class history. It's based on short-term past performance. And it's it's using using data that is not necessarily that great for coming up. So, you know, a lot of times it gets used. So what what we use, I guess what's important for me, Is we, I like using the more data, the better. And, you know, the data I typically use when putting together portfolios goes back to the 1920s. Because the more, the better, in, in my mind. Go
0: ahead. Well, I just think uh, kind of what you described is garbage in, garbage out, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it, it all ba- it's all based on the assumptions that you're making when you do the analysis, whether it's Monte Carlo, whether, whatever it is, the numbers that you're starting with, the amount of data. you can, If you're just using short-term numbers, well, that means you're leaving out decades of numbers that aren't going to have any effect on your results, which could
1: completely mean your results are worthless. And if you don't know what Monte Carlo analysis is, let me just explain that for a second. So if I look at a, uh, a portfolio with an expected return of, let's say, 10%, just use that as a number, and with a standard deviation of 20, what that means is that a Monte Carlo analysis is going to take my returns, it's going to say, okay, your special return is 10, 20% standard deviation just means that your returns could fall anywhere between 10 plus 20, or 30% return, or 10 minus 20. And that's negative 10%. So when we spit out numbers in your for your portfolio, 68% of those numbers are going to be between plus 30 and negative 10. 95% of the numbers are going to be another 20 on top. So it's going to be 30 plus another 20 on top of that, or 50. And then negative 10 minus another 20, which is negative 30. And 95% of the returns are going to fall between. That's going to be a bell curve. And then what happens is then I can determine, hey, based on how much money I'm putting away or how much income I'm taking, you know, or you know, whatever I'm doing, is this likely to work? It's, it's a way of simulating what might happen based on your portfolio return risk characteristics. And if you throw in numbers, like you throw in a, a rate of return that's too high or a standard deviation that's too low, it may give you an optimism that is false, And that is why that's so important to understand that, you know, knowing where those numbers come from. So ask those questions. How did you come up with these numbers? Where did they come from? How much history? Was it, you know, was it going back, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, or was it using a hundred (laughs) years? The more the merrier is really my thing. That's what I want to see is the more the merrier. And, uh, and you know, how were those numbers devised? And then you know, coming down
0: to interpreting the results, okay, well, a lot of time it'll come out and say, okay, you have an 83% chance of success. Well, what does that mean? I mean sure and't uh, because the way that that Monte Carlo analysis works it's going to take uh, the historical numbers and then it's going to shuffle them a thousand different ways yeah and uh, sometimes you're going to have all the good returns at the beginning and those num- that's when you end up you know dying with you know an incredible amount of wealth you can get the all the bad numbers at the beginning and then that means you run out of money before you're gone and so you want to understand what, what those numbers mean yeah exactly and yeah. so kind of understanding what those numbers actually mean where they come from and what assumptions were put into it. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when I run that type of analysis, I'll always use performance numbers that are well below historical averages, just because you don't know what's going to happen.
1: Right, right, exactly. And, you know, so the conservatives, you know, it's it's better to be conservative regarding that. But, you know, a lot of times when people see that, oh, 83% success, I mean, 17%, you know, about, you know, I, I, I could end up with that 17% failure rate. And, you know, when you look at that, it, it means it may just mean that you have unrealistic negatives in the very beginning of the number. So, you know, it's just, it's important to understand this, but you don't have to know all of this stuff, but it's important to know that this technology exists. Probability analysis, I like to call it Monte Carlo sounds like gambling, but, um, you know, you'll hear it referred to as both.
0: Yeah. And, and some of that too, just gets to the point that, um, I'm just losing my train of thought here. I'll,
1: uh, in terms of the the and, risk. It means seventeen percent that you have to re probably thinking about what we always talk about, it means that seventeen percent you might have to actually reduce your spending. Or you can actually change change your spending. Maybe. I don't know. I don't we'll figure it out, right <laughs> You'll remember the train of thought. My mind's slow. So <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Hey, this is Paul Winkler. Hope you enjoyed today's edition of the Investor Coaching Show you want to learn more about what we do, go to our website, paulwinkler.com. You can watch some of the videos there, and if you're not already a client, you can set up a free initial consultation. Until next time, I'm Paul Winkler, reminding you that I believe that more educated investors are more confident investors, and confident investors are more successful investors. Have a great one. Advisory service is offered through Paul Winkler, Inc., PWI, an investment advisor registered in the state of Tennessee. PWI does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your particular situation. This information is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any securities.